Hello, and welcome to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. My name is Jamie Edwards, and I'm a full-time professional endurance coach, age group triathlete, and triathlon fan. The Diary of an Age Grouper podcast is all about content relevant to age groupers. We'll talk to athletes, coaches, and experts who walk the walk. In this episode of The Diary of an Age Grouper, we talk to Kevin Collington. Kevin started his athletic journey as a swimmer and was an age grouper for a short while before embarking on a pro career that has spanned 18 years. He has been interested in coaching and the role the coach can play from from the outset and actively coaching since 2015. The highlight of this, no doubt, is working with me for the last four years. We talk about his experience as an athlete, learnings from his coaches, and where he sees the value of coaching. Kevin Collington, welcome to the Diary of an Age Group podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> and I'm lucky for you, you're actually my coach, so we'll get that um, on the record from the outset. Now, it's true. you've spent 18 years as a pro and you're on the Diary of an Age Group podcast, so obviously you're on as a coach, but your experience as an athlete is definitely very relevant. Is there anything that stands out in terms of your racing career that you can really apply as a coach now? Uh, just so many things. I mean, 18 years plus I did spend, uh, I think, two or three years as an age grouper myself. So 20 plus years of triathlon. And and there is a lot of lessons that I've learned over the years. And yet I continue to make silly mistakes in my own racing at times. But um but yeah, there's there's a there's a bunch of stuff I'd love to share them on the program today. Anything I can think of, anyways. Yep. Okay. Well, do you want to go? You want to go right back into your background of the sport? You mentioned that you did start as an age grouper many years ago. So, do you want to start there and just give us a little bit of a background of how you got into the sport, your time as an age grouper, and then uh, your time spent racing as a professional? Yeah. So, i I started as a swimmer uh, essentially from the age of four. And my brother was on the swim team. He was six years old and I was just a little four-year-old like walking around on the pool deck and um, causing trouble. So they were like, why don't we just throw him in the water and he could start swimming? So I I swam until uh, the end of high school, which uh, was, uh, what was that? That must've been like 14 years of swimming uh, competitively in the United States. And then I went to the University of Florida uh, and you know, during the the Ryan Lochte era at the University of Florida. So uh, at best, I could have walked on to the team. But I had also started, you know, just dabbling in triathlons over the previous summer. So a couple of the swimmers on my team wanted to do a relay at the Disney Triathlon in Orlando, Florida. And I was the only one who could physically run uh, out of all the swimmers. So I was chosen as the runner and only one of us owned a bike and she was the cyclist, as you might imagine. And then all of us could swim and we picked someone to swim. Uh, and so we, we did this uh, Disney triathlon and I think I ran the first mile in like 5.30 or something and immediately regretted that. It, the rest of the race was just like nine minute miles, just 
just hurting so badly, but it was fun. Uh, type two fun as I've started calling it. Right. Um, just looking back on the pain and sort of saying, Hey, that was enjoyable. And, and then I did the race myself the next year uh, as an individual, right. I did the whole race and uh, I had done a few like sprint triathlons. There's a big triathlon community in central Florida where I grew up and I just got hooked. It was just so much fun. Um, just getting faster every race and, and the, essentially almost immediately went, uh, as, uh, to the pro ranks. There was a developmental race where all I had to do was, um, sort of win against other developmental athletes. And I did, and I was sort of granted, I guess, a, a, a developmental pro card in a way. Um, there were no limitations to it. I could race whatever I wanted, but it was a way to get me on a, on a world's team for what was then under 23. And, uh, yeah, my first international race, or I guess major international race was, uh, Hamburg worlds in 2007, uh, as an under 23. So really dating myself 16 years ago, uh, I was racing in Hamburg, Germany and, uh, just such a cool race and an awesome experience. So, you know, from there on, I was, uh, in the ITU program in the U S for about six years and then, uh, switched to long course and, that was really my bread and butter. I was I was better when the race got longer. I I don't really have much of a ability to sprint in any sport. So um, the long course career was was the sort of actual professional career, whereas I would say the ITU career just set me up for with the skills. It set me up with uh, you know all these abilities I wouldn't have had just going straight into uh, non draft racing. And at the time it paid off a lot, right? Just like ITU athletes coming over. It's been a theme seemingly after every Olympic quad, we get new ITU athletes coming over and just dominating. So I was part of that a long time ago. And uh, yeah, that was, that's basically the overview of my career. Yeah. We probably should delve a little bit deeper into that at, at some point, but for now we'll, we'll keep it on to the coaching. So next question is when did coaching start coming to the picture? Uh, on that timeline from being a four-year-old thrown in with your brother's swim team all the way up to you know, where you are now, where you've been a, a professional both in the ITU scene and long course for closing in on 18 years. Yeah. Um, I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to coach people. Uh, I always felt like I, I would be a good coach. I don't know why. Um, and it, so in my mind, it wasn't a, a matter of if I started coaching, it was when, and, uh, you know, I, I probably should have started earlier. I, I think the original sort of uh, impetus to start coaching was I was working with a coach named Bobby McGee, who's a run coach here in the United States. He's South African. He lives actually here in the, the sort of Boulder area, but he's just, he was such an inspiration, not for, not only as a run coach, he taught me how to run. Uh, being a swimmer, I didn't really know uh, proper run mechanics, but also he was very intuitive and he seemed to know what I was thinking before I even thought it. It was, he's just such a, he's so good at reading people um, that I was like, hey, I, like, I think I have a little bit of that. It's obviously a skill that needs to be honed, uh, but he's incredible at it. And I think that was when I started thinking about coaching. Uh, but it wasn't until I was working with uh, Matt Dixon at Purple Patch. I, I just said like, hey, what if I came on as an assistant coach? I had been asked by another coaching company 
to coach for him. It, it was um, another coaching company here in the Boulder area. And Matt was like, no, you're not going to coach for him. You're going to coach for me. And that's how that started. Um, and so I became a, a assistant coach at Purple Patch. I think more of an intern. I always called it like a coaching internship because that's where I really learned the ins and outs of not only like the back end of coaching, right? Like the, the administrative side, um, how to run a coaching business, but then as a career professional, I mean, two or three years as a, as an age grouper in Florida, doesn't really, it's not a really um, big age group uh, resume to draw on, but just learning how to coach all sorts of different age groupers and all of them were different, right? Everyone had a different schedule, um, in work life, uh, family life, everything. And, and as a pro who had operated essentially on pro hours where, you know, you roll out of bed whenever you've gotten 10 hours of sleep and then you start your workouts at nine 30 in the morning and you have nothing else to do in the day except train. Uh, you know, it was a different world for me. And I sort of had to relearn the whole age group, um, mindset and, and, and yeah, it was super valuable. Uh, it was a great way to start coaching. Uh, and since then I moved on and started my own coaching company, but that was, a that was where I started. And that was where I sort of learned everything that I think I know now about the actual, uh, process of coaching athletes. And where were those two sort of meetings? Like you mentioned Bobby McGee and then Matt Dixon, where were they on your career timeline? Where did they fit in? Uh, right. Yeah. So Bobby, Bobby McGee, I met almost immediately upon, starting my career as a pro. So uh, as a developmental pro under 23, we would get invited to these camps in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center or in San Diego, California. Um, and there's an Olympic Training Center there as well. And Bobby would always be the run coach, but he would also be the mental training coach. Like he, he was so strong in both running and then just uh, mental strength and, and how to think about things. Um, when you're racing, when you're under that duress of racing. So that was 2007, 2008, 2009 with Bobby. And he was, actually became my head coach in 2010, um, just for a year. And we had an assistant cycling coach and an assistant swim coach sort of on board because Bobby's he knew he wasn't as strong as he should be in those two areas, swimming and cycling. But So Bobby was right at the beginning of my career. And then Purple Patch was... Uh, 2015, I started working with Matt. So after my entire ITU career, I'd raced long course for a couple of years already. And I was looking for a coach who had uh, just a lot of success with with pro athletes at, a, at the long course, uh, like 70.3 Ironman distance. And Matt was uh, recommended to me. And I met him in Kona, actually. Uh, topical since this week is Kona week. I just had a coffee with Matt and he's like, you look like you could actually be a lot better than you are. And that was when we started working together and lo and behold, I did become a lot better than I was with him. So uh, yeah, about eight years apart, those two coaches. Yeah. Okay. And then 2015, obviously now we're in 2023. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a fair bit of experience. I think it's very interesting going back to Bobby McGee, being you being so young and so early on in your career. Um, and it's obviously had a lasting impression on you and then yeah more recently with with matt dixon we've had tim reed on the podcast before and he's certainly sung matt dixon's praises as a coach so i think we'll get into that a little bit more down the track as well just one other thing i wanted to touch on with bobby you mentioned he was like the mental skills coach uh, was that a was that an official title or that's just 
the way you saw him or is that sort of how the program as a whole just worked out because he gravitated towards being very good at that side of things? It wasn't an official title. He was brought into these camps as a run coach, uh, but also he would just hold, they, you know, we would have different classes throughout the day, we, training sessions and then educational sessions as well. And he would often do, I mean, I think at every single camp, he would do a session on mental skills and just like little things you can do. And off the top of my head, it was stuff like, you know, if you're, if you're starting to have like a negative mindset and he was specifically referring to marathon running um, since he is a run coach, but he's like, if you're at, let's just say uh, 35 kilometers in the race and you're starting to sort of have a negative mental outlook on the race, there's a good chance. He's like, there's a good chance your blood sugar is just low. And it, it's, it can be as simple as that. It sounds silly, right? Because that's kind of obvious. But when you're racing, sometimes it's not as obvious and you need to have been told that and just sort of uh, having, he had mentioned like glucose, uh, like glucose pills or something. You just have them in your pocket. But I found it's much easier to just have jelly beans, if, if you, just something with sugar. And as soon as it, he's like, as soon as it hits your lips, your brain says, oh, there's sugar. And it can completely turn around your mindset. Just stuff like that. Um, teaching athletes that from the very outset of their careers was pretty valuable. And I think he saw mental training as almost an equal to the physical training that we did, because if you, you can be the strongest athlete in the world, and if you're not you know, ready to tackle the actual demands of the race that day mentally, then it, you know, you're, you're not going to get everything out of yourself on the day. So it was kind of a two-pronged approach, approach in his mind. And it certainly worked for me. Uh, there's been times where I've just been, you know, just suffering on the race course and I'll have remembered something Bobby told me and um, yeah, it's paid off for me at least in my career. And so I try and, I try and bring those little nuggets of wisdom out with my athletes whenever it's appropriate and, um, and yeah, just pass it on to the next generation. Yeah. I think that's where that experience comes in because it's, it'll be those little tidbits that you get from coaches along the way or other athletes and, having such a vast experience racing around the world, having different coaches racing at different levels, you know, you just take these little tidbits and they, they just, you know, they sort of ingrain themselves in the corner of your brain somewhere. And then you can pick them out in certain situations, whether it's for you racing and you can apply it in that way or whether you can now apply it for you as a coach. So I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, one thing that's obviously going to make, make you a good coach. Do you, do you think there are some traits that you display that make, you a good coach like there are other things like you said you're initially you know you always wanted to be a coach you always thought you would end up going down the path of coaching even at quite young and then that was sort of solidified after you started working with with bobby early on um are there other things that that make you a good coach well i think the main thing is that i just and not to like toot my own horn here but i tend to just remember everything that my coaches have told me and and I, so I have all these different coaches throughout my career and, you know, sometimes I guess I'll be chatting to someone I'll be, and I'll say something like, uh, do you remember when so-and-so told us this? And they'll be like, no, what are you talking about? And I just think I like, that's one of my strongest traits in coaching is that I, I think I remember most of the lessons, most of the workouts, like sometimes down to the, like the gritty details of a workout that we did and why I thought it worked for me at the time. And um, you know, having done a lot of coaches education at Purple Patch and then on my own, 
um, just seeing, looking back and being like, oh, well, this is why that worked. And this is how it would work for an athlete of, you know, similar nature as me, or this is why it wouldn't work for an athlete of, of the complete opposite of me. Um, so I, I don't think I'm nearly as intuitive as Bobby McGee. That's kind of a, you know, a, a high goal to, to, to like try and get, he's just so good at that, like reading people. I don't think I'm as good at reading people as he is, but, um, I do think like just remembering most of the things that have been taught to me over the years and then being able to apply them in, in most situations uh, and coaching situations is, is one of my biggest strengths as a coach. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe you can tell me, what do you, what do you think uh, is a, is a good uh, coaching? Uh, what, what I forget your question now, um, but so, yeah, passing it on to you. Yeah, well, you're not allowed to do that, so that's the first thing. <laughs> but uh, no, the question was, you know, yeah, what are the what what are some of the traits that you you um, think make you a good coach? So, I I, th- I think as a it's sort of a general statement, and maybe this is a little bit unfair, but I, I feel like a lot of professional athletes they they will end up in coaching, um, but I don't think it was part of the plan. Um, whereas for you, you said it was something you kind of identified early on. I think they they have a career and then sort of partway through that, they realize, oh, well, this is not going to be forever. Um, and, you know, and a logical next step is to go into coaching. Um, so yeah. I think the difference for you is you identified it early and you started picking picking things things out and, and you know, have, have a lot of experience just with the way your career went and have worked with a lot of coaches along the way. Um, so, you know, maybe a nicer way or a fairer way for me to ask it rather than putting you on the spot was, you know, of the coaches that you've worked with, of which there's been quite a few, um, you know, what, what were the common traits? What, what were the standouts um, that, that made different people uh, good at what they do? You've obviously touched on Bobby quite extensively already. You've touched on Matt Dixon, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to name the names, but are, are there other things that you think makes them a good coach and things that sort of stood out to you over the years? Yeah. I mean, the coach that really stands out and wasn't even my coach. I was just there. Uh, so, um, Darren Smith, I don't know. I, I think some of the listeners might remember Darren Smith. Others might not. So Darren was, a kind of a, a famous coach. I, at one point I would say he was, he would have been considered the best coach in the world for uh, very specifically female ITU athletes. Uh, I think the London quad, he had six women on the start line uh, for the Olympics and ended up getting, if I remember off the top of my head, something like second place, fourth place, ninth place, ninth place. And then, you know, from there, it doesn't even matter, right? Like it's just such an incredible resume off of one race that uh, sort of speaks for itself. But so I was dating at uh, my girlfriend at the time was coached by Darren. And uh, there was a training camp again, down in Chula Vista, California in the winter, and I was allowed, uh, very fortunate in retrospect, to just sort of be there. And I was just the the boyfriend, and I would get to do some of the sessions with the squad. And uh, you know, essentially, I I think I can quote Darren. He saw me running one day, and he just turned to uh, the squad, and he was just like, "Ah, he's kind of a shit runner, isn't he?" <laughs> and like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that he said that. And uh, so I, from then on, I was just like, "So what is it that?" you saw that made me so bad at running. And I guess, you know, from there, he just explained his entire running philosophy. And it was, uh, when you combine it with uh, what I'd been taught from Bobby, it was quite formative in 
uh, the way that I was developing as a runner. And like from uh, from my career, I would say I went from being like a very bad runner that just had a big engine from swimming to uh, kind of a like an upper echelon runner in the pro male ranks. Um, not so much in ITU. I had some decent runs, but now that I'm in long course, I've, I've really hit my stride, uh, I guess, pun intended. But, you know, just having him like, it was an insult, right? Very direct. He's Australian. He's from Canberra. So uh, I've learned that Australians can be very direct and they will tell you exactly what they think. Uh, whereas Americans, right, might be like, you know, just kind of beat around the bush a little bit. But so once I got used to his directness, it was, I realized he's just trying to help. And, uh, and it, yeah, it, it was, um, it was him. It was actually he who recommended Matt Dixon as a coach. So uh, in terms of like my career and the trajectory that it took, he was, uh, he was very formative in, in the way my career went. And, uh, he wasn't even actually my coach. I was just a guy who was there. So. Yeah. Very interesting. So I, I think, I think good coaching, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, but I think there's accreditation, official accreditation, and then there's ongoing education, which can take on different forms. But then I think there's experience um, as well, which, are, which is what you have in spades. And I, I think another big one is is care, which sounds so obvious, but you know, I, I think especially in the age group ranks, there's a lot of coaches who coach because it's their business and it's it, it's become their career, but they just they need bums on seats, so to speak, which is un- the unfortunate reality sometimes of running a business, but. You know, having a care, uh, having that deep-seated care as a coach, I think is is very important. And it's, I, I don't think every coach actually possesses that naturally. Whereas I think you do with, again, your you wanting to get into coaching so young and so early, and and feeling like you're, um, you have some underlying traits that will ensure that you're good at what you're doing. But I deflected a little bit earlier and said you weren't allowed to ask me but a couple of things when you were talking then. I think the details, um, and you mentioned, you know, that you have this uncanny ability to just remember details, like we'll often be having coach-athlete conversations and you, you can, you're, you're able to draw upon your experiences. So I'll ask a question or we're having a discussion about a certain point and you will bring up one of those um, moments and and those experiences. I remember when this happened or that happened. So that that's happened a lot over the few years that we've been working together obviously experience is a big one um and yeah i think you do care it's a funny story when you we sort of met and got in contact through purple patch um, when you were working there and when they suggested you as a coach for me and a good fit uh, which we now know you know was a very good fit but at the time i didn't i i wasn't particularly interested in being coached by a professional and it's funny because it's some of those reasons that you said that you sleep in once you've had your 10 hours and you know you you train when you want to train like you're on pro hours and i wanted someone who understood that i really cared about performance but i also cared about health and you know i had a life i was running a business i had a young family i still do and and all of those things that came along with it and you've actually been really good at you know those considerations and sometimes better at it than me and you're able to pull me out of that and you know make that more objective decision so there you go there's a few things that i think uh, make you a good coach Ah, thank you. Yeah, I guess you no, know, that does make sense. And I think you mentioned bums on seats. That is such a uh, that that's so topical, right? Like because uh, I've seen coaches with just and of course not going to name names, but way too many athletes on their roster. And I wonder how you can possibly uh, focus on every single one. 
And, you know, I, I'm currently part of a, a run group here in Boulder and uh, the coach coaches probably hundreds of athletes, but that's what you sign up for, right? It's, it's not meant to be like this um, really in-depth coaching process. Uh, it's just sort of a plan and you follow it. But with triathlon, there's a lot more um, sort of white glove service uh, where you, you really have to be on deck for each athlete you coach at almost all times. Uh, saves, you know, nighttime, except for you, because you're awake during the night being on the other side of the world. Um, but yeah, just when I was racing uh, as a pro, and technically still am, I capped it at six athletes. And um, I think the most I could possibly handle is 12, you know, delivering the same level of service. And I think that's the main thing is as soon as you start getting, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15, I don't want to limit other coaches, they might be more they might have more free time. They might have more, um, you know, just ability to coach more athletes. But I think for me, if I were to start getting up towards 20, I would just sort of lose the plot with a few of my athletes and, and then it wouldn't be uh, the right fit anymore. So yeah. Uh, you know, it's been a pleasure coaching uh, a lot of different athletes all the way from when I started at Purple Patch to now. And I, what I really enjoy doing is just, you know, creating a, you know, these personalized plans for each athlete and and really being able to focus in on their particular life um i think anywhere from to give you some extremes uh 71 year old retired uh man who was qualified for kona and he was like kevin i can train up to 30 hours a week and i said well you can't because you're 71 <laughs> uh but he was just so ready to train like a pro and i had to hold him back all day uh, all the way down to uh, uh, another Kona qualifier, uh, like a 22, I think she was 22 or 23 at the time. Um, and uh, didn't live, she lived in, uh, she still lives in Peru and just like extremely talented, um, very injury prone. And, you know, again, holding someone back for a different reason, right? She probably you know, had the ability to train a lot more uh, in terms of hours and physical ability to absorb the training, but um you know, the injuries were, were getting in the way. So uh, I think I might've just gone off on a tangent. So bring me back, uh, bring me back on topic, Jamie. <laughs> okay. Well, we've started now. So let, do you have, you know, can you talk to us about your underlying philosophy? Do you have an underlying philosophy? Are there, are there key things that you're trying to achieve with it, with each athlete, regardless of, you know, where they fit on that spectrum of, of age or ability or goals or experience. And as part of that question, you know, what, what is your approach when you, when you get a, when you're working with someone like, you know, I guess they're, a, in, they're intertwined those two sort of topics, but yeah, talk to us about, you know, the things that, you know, are really integral to the way that you coach athletes. Yeah. I, I think just the headline would be um, personalized coaching for each athlete. And so if I were to bring on an athlete, let's say it's Jamie Edwards, uh, I would say, okay, well, we have to figure out what kind of athlete you are, right? So, and that can be a whole bunch of different things. So swim, bike, run, uh, what's your strength? And so now just continuing to use you as an example, uh, you know, swim pretty strong, run is your, is your absolute strength. And then cycling is what we're working on. And then, you know, how do we get there is the next question. So uh, we have a, a bunch of different you know, tests we can do, uh, physiological tests, all the way from sort of just a standard FTP test to, uh, I, I do have a certification in inside 
which is INSCYV, which is essentially a remote uh, metabolic testing, right? So if you were to go into a lab and get on a treadmill or a, a erg bike and put on a, a gas exchange mask and do sort of a ramp test um, to figure out, you know, various trading zones and uh, what your lactate levels are at different um, outputs and all that sort of stuff. So you would go into a lab, you, you'd have to A, have a lab near you, uh, someone who knows what they're doing and then pay a bunch of money. Uh, so Insight just kind of allows you to to do that remotely without going into a lab and the results are pretty similar. So, but you you can do any number of tests, right? Anything from a free FTP test, you're just out on the road, you do 20 minutes or uh, the Zwift ramp test uh, and just figuring out what kind of athlete is this? Is it an athlete who uh, just naturally has a Tour de France level sprint and can just go out and just like, oh, casually touches 1400 watts on a ride, um, like maybe a group ride where they sprinted to the sign or are you more like me, where it's like, if you see 600 watts, it's the most power you've ever seen in years. Um, but I can just go forever, sort of, right? Like uh, the ability to hold a lower power for a long time. Uh, so it sort of tells the story of the athlete. And then from there, you just like, you know, learn that, learn the athlete's schedule. Uh, what are the limiters like time-wise? So family, uh, job, and anywhere from obviously retired uh, 71 year olds in New Jersey to, uh, you with a, a young family in Australia. Um, so it, it's just all these limiters and then you just combine them. It's my job to just sit there and combine them every week into a trading plan that will get the most out of you. So, you know, if you're not sleeping well, Jamie, then I need to know about that so that we can dial, dial your training back. Um, or to to use the the term purple patch in an actual sentence, if you're in a purple patch and you're just, everything's going in like insanely good, then we can ramp up the trading and sort of feel good about it, right? Um, so, so yeah, it's just it, it's such a personalized approach that I think that's where I would get caught up with too many athletes. I just wouldn't be able to do that anymore. Um, but it it works for you. It has worked, and we're hoping it continues to work. Uh, as we drive towards uh, the summer season in Australia. Yeah, so it's, it's really a, it's, you know, I think the underlying philosophy and approach, the answer to that question in a streamlined form is it's just, it's really personalized. Um, and, you know, it combines your experience, your education, but also the details um, and applying that to each individual. Now we're going to talk about remote coaching in a, in a, in a second, because obviously that's, it's quite relevant. Um, but recently when you sort of launched your coaching business, you, you wrote an article about the value of coaching and you sort of went through things that you think are valuable, uh, in terms of having a coach and what the coach can provide. So we thought today we would go through that. So can you just go through that, um, article, obviously don't read it out, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just, you know, go through each of those topics, um, and, and just sort of share your thoughts um, on what, what they do and the value that they can provide or a coach can provide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did, I wrote this, um, I guess it was earlier this year. So, and in a way it was like, what mistakes did I make in my career around coaching that I could pass on right in some way? So I think, you know, the first one is that 
and this is specifically around male athletes such as myself. Uh, so when I was starting out, I had a coach. Um, it was she ended up being my first coach uh, ever for triathlon. But she came up to me after that development race where I qualified to race as a pro, and she said, "Hi, my name is Jennifer. I would like to coach you. I'm the regional talent development manager in the state of Florida for USA Triathlon." And I said, "No thanks. I know what I'm doing." Uh, which is silly because, you know, in retrospect, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, and it's a very like, uh, like not every male athlete is going to be this way, but it's a very sort of male characteristic that I've seen in some of my athletes where it's sort of either I already know what I'm doing. And by the way, Jamie, you are not like this. So uh, congrats to you on, on bucking the trend here, but uh either I already know what I'm doing and it's up to you to sort of like tell me uh, to, to tell me that I am doing the right thing. Right. Like, uh, or just like basically say, I already know it all and I don't need a coach. And that's what I did at first. Um, and I will say, I, I guess the, the actual clinical term for this is Dunning's Kruger effect, Dunning Kruger effect, where uh, sort of, as you're just starting out in something like it could be anything, it could be, tennis could be triathlon um it could be uh you know, hot air ballooning i don't know as soon as you get into it you kind of think you know everything and then uh, after a few years of honing your practice you might realize looking back that you actually at the time didn't know anything so it wasn't very long before jennifer started coaching me and obviously turned my entire training program around and uh, i mean just night and day performance that I started getting just so much faster. Um, and then I won the university championship for in the United States in 2007. And that was when it sort of just, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, that was silly of me to think that I knew what I was doing um, it, at that time. So I think the, the first thing I wrote about was essentially like a coach probably knows, well, hire a coach that knows more than you. And it's not that hard to find. I think most age group athletes um, would admit that like it's hard to create your own training schedule, even if you did know what you were doing. Uh, Self-coaching is is usually not successful, even in the best athletes. And, and in the some of the less experienced athletes, it's obviously um, even less successful than that. So, And not to mention, it takes time to design a training program. And if you're already time poor, if you already have a full-time job or a family or other, you know, things that you do with your time, then, you know, it's not even worth it to try, I think. But I, I think outside of that, in the article, I just started getting into things like accountability. You know, when, when I have had short stints of self-coaching, it's really easy to change the workout sort of mid-workout because no one's going to look at it after you're done. You, there's no coach to look at your training peaks or whatever it is you use for uh, for training today's plan or whatever it is. Uh, so accountability, I think, is super important. Um, objectivity, uh, I just saw some posts from Kona just this week where some coaches flew out for their athletes and just having an objective view of the race that just a lot of athletes might have a very emotional viewpoint about Kona, right? Like, I'm finally here. I'm on the big island. Uh, I'm I'm doing my first world championship or my 10th world championship, whatever it is. Uh, but just having a, a really objective uh, viewpoint where, you know, the example that comes to mind is uh, there's a guy who takes the first mile split 
uh, I can't remember who does that, but he takes the first mile split uh, from the pros and then compares it to their overall result. And there's a very high correlation to the athletes who are running just super excited, way too fast for the first mile uh, to have a bad marathon. I mean, it's not that big of a, it's not a big stretch of the imagination to think that that would happen, but having an, an objective coach there to be like, Hey, there's going to be a lot of uh, people on the side of the road cheering for you in that first mile, all the way down Alihi, all the way back down Alihi. There's a lot of energy and you can feed off that energy and just use all of your physical ability in those first eight miles. Or you could just sort of like remind yourself and keep me in the back of your mind telling you to take it easy that first eight miles because on the opposite side of the the, the run course, when you're out on the Queen K and no more spectators are allowed out there and then you're out in the energy lab and it's desolate, it's mile 18. Uh, yeah, things can get really low. Um, so I think just that objectivity is, is a big thing. Um, and then that ties into another point I, I wrote about racing strategy, uh, general guidance. It was just sort of everything that I, all the mistakes that I've made, just don't make the mistakes that I've made. And it's as simple as hiring a good coach, right? At least in my view, uh, having worked with some of the best coaches in the world uh, during my time of racing um, has really paid off for me. So I feel like uh, if you're on the fence about like, should I buy a new bike or should I hire a coach? you're probably going to get more out of a coach than you would out of uh, uh, the brand new uh, shiny thing uh, that's being sold right now as the, as the, the next way to be faster. So that's sort of the point I was trying to make with that article. Yeah, it's like an investment in a collaborative approach that is going to yield results over time as opposed to, yeah, the shiny object like the new bike or a piece of equipment or a wearable. Um, it's, yeah, it's what you yeah. can do over time working with another human being who, who cares equally or sometimes more than you um, to help you get the result. And as long as that's married up and you're aligned in your approach and you've got buy-in, then um, yeah, it, it's going to be, it's going to be a successful relationship. So a couple of things I'll on, on that. Um, I love your first point and the detail there and comparing it back to young Kevin who thought he knew better. Have you, have you got an example in your own coaching of, of that occurring? Um, thankfully you said, I wasn't like that. So that's good. Hopefully the example is not me. Um, but if you, have you got another example that stands out and again, obviously you don't need to name names here, but, or, or it might be a general theme um, that where, where this is, this is common. Yeah. I, I have a, an athlete I coach right now, actually. And uh, as I've said, it's not you, but well, you've only got um, six. So, you know, if they listen to this, they might know it's them or have you already told them that it's them uh I, they he knows that it's him okay and, that's fine uh <laughs> and he'll yeah i'll actually probably send him this podcast and he'll have a good laugh and it really comes from uh how he ended up contacting me to get coached he he said uh, i was coached by i kind of got hooked up with a with a training peaks coach and it didn't do much for me uh so i think you know not to single out any coach or anything but it was a I think what it was, was a sort of a cookie cutter plan. And it, that's obviously the opposite of what I do. So he was already sort of skeptical about coaching when he contacted me. And in a way it was up to me to sort of prove him wrong or uh, show him that good coaching is possible. And I mean, to give you a little bit about him, he is obviously a male athlete. So uh, this, the same thing I was mentioning earlier, he's also 
uh, very smart. He is a uh, he has a degree in mechanical engineering, and uh, I think all of his children. Uh, one of them works for NASA, uh, and just ex- extremely high performing family. And that's the sort of that's the type of athlete that is wanting to do it all themselves. Because up until that point in at least in my life, I, I was able to do most of the things myself, right? Like, uh, education at university, it was just like, um, it wasn't like, it was just me. I, I kind of knew what I was doing. I did a good job. And then why would coaching be any different? But so, uh, he had all these, like essentially super easy problems to fix. Uh, so he was bonking at mile eight of every run, uh, in a race that he did. So, uh, he would, these were 70.3s, right? So he would do the swim, 1900 meters, uh, 56 mile bike and like clockwork at mile eight, he would just uh, blow up and he, he thought the problem was unsolvable, but in the end it was just nutrition, um, obviously, right? Like, and and we've, you and I have been working on this as well. There is, I mean, up until maybe five years ago, people were basically under fueling and there's a, there's a whole sort of um, movement now to how much can you take in on the swim and on the bike. And, and we didn't even have to really move his nutrition up a lot to get him to uh, be able to complete a race uh, the entire run with uh, energy to spare essentially. So I think he's, uh, he's a little older and I think he's going faster now at the age of 68 or 69 than he was at 51, 52. Like, uh, we just had a, a huge personal best at 70.3 Michigan. Uh, that was just a few weeks ago. So um, just sort of uh, that was just one example, right, of the nutrition with him and, and just the general training uh, that I give him. He, he's 100% bought into the plan now, which is awesome. It makes him easy to coach. And he knows he's just like, whatever Kevin puts up, I'm going to do it. And I bought into the plan. And, you know, we're going to discuss uh, the race strategy and the nutritional strategy prior to races. But uh, we've had probably five or six really successful data points now at races um, that he's gone from uh, skeptical to 100% bought in. And yeah, it, I'm happy I was able to do that with him. And, uh, and you know, it's happened multiple times. Uh, that was the one that just came to mind, but it's happened prior as well. I think at my time at Purple Patch. So um, it's just, it is fun to do that. It's fun to sort of see people, see the mindset just change in an athlete um, where they really value the coaching. Yeah. I think it's that buy-in, as you said, and and seeing that it works and, and seeing the value in it. Um, and yeah, when, when that clicks and then they, and then they buy in, then that's, yeah, that's where it can really be, um, very successful. Um, and you know, you can, from there, the sky's the limit, like, because you could, you could be the best coach in the world, but if, if someone sort of doesn't believe in what you're saying or aren't, uh, engaged with the whole process, then it's never going to be as successful as it could potentially be. Um, a couple other things. So I, I like the simplicity around general guidance. I think that's really understated in coaching as just having someone in your corner. And then the objectivity piece is, is a big one. I think I, I mentioned it um, earlier in the discussion of, of just someone being and having that objective mindset and being able to look at it free of emotion. And that can be really powerful, you know, when you're in the weeds and there's a hundred things going on and you need to figure out what's going on with training 
um, that objectivity can just be so powerful. It can be so easy to be clinical when you're objective, but, um, and that's exactly what you would need sometimes. And then accountability, like I often will sort of share this kind of story, but I've lost count of the number of sessions that I've done um, when, when maybe the odds were against me or I didn't really feel like doing it just because I, I was accountable to a program and to a coach because and again, it's such a simple thing, but accountability of just knowing that someone cares, knowing that, knowing that someone's going to look at training peaks, no one's going to have, someone's going to have a look and see where they did the session and you did the intervals. And it sounds so silly as adults, but you know, I think, I think accountability is a, a very good thing, a very powerful, powerful thing. And, and again, very simple. And some people almost get offended by it that, you know, accountability is going to be a, such a big part, part of the coaching relationship because they like to think they're self-driven and self-motivated. But as I said, there's been countless times where I've done a session just because I didn't want to be, didn't want to say, oh, I didn't do it because of A, B, and C. And like the the odds are that, you know, later in the day or the following day, if I didn't do it, I'd be disappointed in myself for the, for the same reasons. But sometimes it's just simply, I don't have to explain to another adult that I didn't do this basically because I couldn't be bothered, which was, <laughs> um, yeah, which is kind of like the dog ate your homework, when, you know, the old, old school excuse when, uh, you know, I don't think it was ever actually excuse given, but it was kind of that joking excuse that, oh, what, where's your homework today? Um, and then the dog ate it. So that's how I kind of explain, like, <laughs> yeah. you just didn't do it because you didn't do it. Like, and that's, you know, sometimes that happens, but accountability is such a big one. And along with objectivity and general guidance, um, I think, yeah, really, really understated um, and underrated um, parts of the value of coaching. Before we move on, I just do want to touch on the racing strategies. Can you maybe go into a bit of bit, bit of bit, little bit more detail on the racing strategies and what you meant by that, um, and how you might apply that with a couple of different athletes, and what your role as a coach is when you when someone's approaching a race? Yeah. So, I mean, I was just thinking about racing strategy as you were as you were talking just then, and how good Matt Dixon was at race strategy. So, as an athlete. Uh, I remember just when I was approaching a race, I knew all I had to do was just ask Matt what he, what he thinks I should do. How should I approach the race? Uh, we would chat on the phone. You know, he would usually know who was on the race start line and uh, we would just go from there and, and he would give me, uh, you know, things to focus on or, or instructions for each part of the race, swim, bike, run, uh, what to do here, what to do if this happened. And, he was just so good at that, uh, that I think that was one of his massive strengths as a coach. It wasn't just delivering the plan. Um, and you could see it across the board because he did have quite a few successful athletes at the time. So, uh, so I know personally how important that can be to have good race strategy. And that was with pro racing and, and it applies almost equally to age group racing. It's just a little different. Um, so just using the same athlete, actually, that I was just talking about, uh, the one who didn't really buy in at first to the coaching, mm -hmm. um, most recently we actually at 70.3 Michigan, he would just, he would complain about swimming over athletes at the start of a race. Uh, and it, you know, I've never done an age group 70.3 race start, but I, obviously I know it's a sort of rolling start, choose your start position. Uh, there's always people holding a sign. Uh, here's the 30 minute swimmers, the 32 minute swimmers, 34. And, you know, he would rate himself probably as a 36 minute swimmer. And I just said, Hey, start with the 30 minute swimmers. And I know you're not supposed to do that, but everyone is doing it. 
and it changed his race day performance because uh, what it actually is is the 30 minute swimmers are starting with the 26 minute swimmers and the so the 34 minute swimmers are starting with the 30 minute swimmers and just little things like that where uh, you know there's a lot of uh, triathletes are somewhat type a rule rule following people in general so uh, you know a lot of athletes if they swim at 36 are going to line up with the 36 minute swimmers uh, but you know that's what that ends up being usually is swimming over slower people with or swimming around them um, and then from there it's just you know you essentially you take the course whether it's uh you know geelong 70.3 if i were chatting to you or 70.3 st george here in the states uh totally different approaches to races which is essentially like how do you how do you take in the nutrition over a, a somewhat crowded hilly mountainous course uh how do you approach the fact that there's an 11 mile descent into town this is st george uh so you you pretty much do a 20 to 30 minute hill climb uh, uh uh, probably a categorized climb if it were in the Tour de France, straight into an 11 mile descent. And, you know, what I like to tell my athletes is you have a 45 mile bike course and you have it 11 miles to take in nutrition for the run. Um, so just little things like that, that can change the athlete, the way they look at the course. Um, and, you know, same thing for the run, uh, in the past, St. George has been straight uphill, and then rolling around on the top of a sort of a bluff overlooking the city and then straight downhill. And it just uses everything you have as a runner, uh, uphill skills, downhill running skills, uh, rolling hills, um, and also heat, right? So you really just have to take the strengths of the athlete, uh, the course that they're racing on and just sort of lay out a plan. And, you know, if you were to just go into a 70.3 or, or an Ironman and just be like full send, right? I'm just going to send it, see what happens. Uh, it usually doesn't end well. Uh, whereas if you do like, oh, I'm going to do a calculated send this time. It's so much better. It, you know, things tend to go quite a bit better. Uh, if you have um, little mental things to think about, uh, cues, maybe you write a note, put it on your top tube or whatever it is on your bike. So yeah, lots of little things you can do with athletes in terms of race strategy. Um, that can be the difference between, uh, uh, finishing, you know, one minute faster, 10 minutes faster, who knows on the day. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, as I was listening to you answer that, that question, I think a couple of things came to mind. It's for, for the first example in particular, it, I think that object objectivity was at play. So just being able to, um, you know, see that, okay, you, you don't want to be swum over or don't want to swim over the people. What, what's the solution? And then the second part is just that general guidance, but specific to an athlete and specific to the course. So again, they all kind of tie in together. Um, and ultimately one of our roles as coaches is, is to provide solutions for athletes and, and help them, help them be better, um, and draw on, a, draw on that experience, um, to, to help them have a, have a better experience and continue to to learn and grow. I'm going to change direction a little bit now. Art versus science gets thrown around a lot in terms of coaching. Do you have a take on that? Like what is art versus science? And do you have a tendency to lean towards one versus the other? Yeah, art versus science, I do. I, my favorite example of this is master swimming in Boulder. So I swim with a master swim group in here in Boulder. Uh, and it's coached by Simon Lessing and, uh, not to drop names. Obviously I think most people would know who he is. He's 
uh, one of the most decorated triathletes of all time. And he will not hesitate to tell you that in person. Um, and so he's the coach of the master swim group and, you know, his training works. It, you know, everybody tends to swim faster when they swim with Simon and there's the group aspect, of course, uh, swimming with the group, but, uh, not to give away some, amazing secrets of coaching of Simon, but he has four zones for swimming and the zones are easy. Firstly, you do need to give away the, the secrets. Uh, uh, If there are secrets, we want to know them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, But there, you're going to be so underwhelmed here. Um, I hope Simon's not, not listening to this. So he has four zones, (laughs) easy, steady, moderate, and hard. And uh, like, honestly, if you were on the side of the pool deck, you would think that it's just easy and hard because uh, we'll have a steady, like, let's just say it's a 300 steady into a 400 moderate into a 100 hard Simon. He'll just, he'll be like, it's not fast enough. No matter what I do, it's not fast enough. Um, so clearly this is more of an art side of coaching, right? So easy is always easy. It's like double arm backstroke. You can't go easy enough. And then, um, the rest of the swim, it's sort of like, I really have to monitor myself in a way, like, even if Simon's yelling at me from the side of the pool, that wasn't fast enough for your study. Like my daughter swims faster than that, which is true. Actually, his daughter is quite fast. Um, or he'll even throw himself into the mix. Like I did this set earlier today and what you're doing is rubbish. <laughs> so essentially, but what, what is his training doing? And if you look at it, a lot of coaches are using this exact same thing. They just have much more scientific names for it, which is, critical swim speed. So the hard is just essentially CSS swimming. So you've probably heard of that. Uh, I know a lot of different coaching groups use CSS. Uh, There's tests for it. You can go out and do essentially a 400 meter time trial and then, or 400 yards if you're in the States and then take a lot of rest, like 600, 800 yards meters of easy swimming to clear the lactic acid. And then you do a 200 meter all out. Uh, some swims also have a hundred all out at the end of that. And you can type it into this Excel formula and like, it'll pop out your CSS, uh, swim speed. And essentially my CSS swim speed from those tests is the exact same speed that I swim in the hard intervals at Simon's swim. But Simon, if you say what's, what's critical swim speed, he'll be like, he won't know what you're talking about. Like maybe he's heard of it or he'll be like, oh, that's dumb right? Like my way or the highway, but that's the art of coaching is that this training for Simon has worked over time and consistently, right? Like it's worked for me. Uh, Like specifically this year, I had some very good swims off of Simon's training. And, and I think that's the art versus the science is that it just depends on how you frame it. Um, Because Simon is just like very much frames it as like, just do as I say, and everything will be okay. Whereas there's coaches out there who are like, here's the scientific reason that this is happening, um, that this is why we're doing it. And this is, these are the, um, the adaptations that your body is going to go through after you do it uh, consistently over time. And then this is the result that, you're, that we hope you're going to get. So I think that kind of encapsulates the whole art versus science. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of it out there, right? Like uh, when I was coached by Matt Dixon, there was a lot of just sort of, uh, sets where there isn't a given output that you're supposed to do. It was just hard and you're training with others and, and the group aspect, plus the, the fact that, you know, your coach is there watching you, uh, you tend to get the best out of yourself. 
um, and and managing the managing the recovery afterwards is a big thing too. So if you do uh, tend to go, if you did go too hard on a certain session, it's about um, giving the body time to recover and adapt to that session. Um, and then over time, learning the correct output where maybe you can hit more consistency over time uh, because you didn't go 101%, you only went 100% on that workout. Uh, so then you're able to get to the next hard session faster. So uh, I think there's just a lot of, um, it's it, just like anything else in life. It's a, it's a continuum where you want to have the science, you want to know why it's happening and why you need to do this, but you also need to apply the art of coaching uh, to all of your athletes. Um, because again, you don't know what an athlete's, well, you need to know what an athlete's going through, but like, if you don't, how do you design their training program? Uh, cause you've probably heard this before, but stress is stress, whether it's work stress, life stress, or training stress and managing that, you know, over weeks and months to get the best out of your athlete is, is really, I think the job of a coach. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I'm glad I asked that question because you probably took it and answered it in a way that I wasn't expecting you to answer. But I think, um, as I said, yeah, very interesting take on it. And it's it's whatever, however you coach and whoever you're coaching, you have to be able to get them to buy in and help them improve. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. And the way in which you do that, the method in which you do that, um, it doesn't really matter as long as it's successful. And I think, I think the other... The other bit is understanding as the coach, whether or not you explain that to the athlete or not, understanding as the coach as to why it's been successful. And I think that's that's a really important distinction. But yeah, that was a definitely an interesting take and a good way of sort of explaining where you stand on, on the art versus science. Now we're going to go into, because you mentioned swimming and Simon Lessing and the Masters squad, you were a very good swimmer, still are a very good swimmer and typically a front prac pro. So you can definitely swim. So can you give some swim tips or your top swim tips for age group triathletes? Uh, yeah, I think the my biggest strength, uh, it became my biggest strength was open water swimming. And I'm going to go back to Darren Smith. Uh, when I was a plus one at his training camp, they would drive down to, uh, I think, I can't remember the name, but essentially like a, an open water venue in San Diego. So Pacific ocean, uh, some of it, sometimes we were protected in a Harbor. Sometimes we were just out in the surf, but swimming with, uh, six to eight Olympic level females, uh, ITU athletes, plus a handful of male pros who weren't as notable, but still good swimmers. Uh, you know, the way to become a good open water swimmer is to swim open water. And in my case, you know, with ITU racing, there's a lot of physical contact in the, in the swimming and I, the same in, in long distance racing as well in the pro ranks that a lot of it was like, how do you swim? How do you take your pool swimming and apply it to open water? And there were some certain stroke instructions from Darren, um, uh, you know, uh, not to get into the weeds too much, but high cadence was a big one, a, a high stroke rating. Uh, really focusing on the power portion of your stroke underneath the body, not so much on a long gliding stroke in front of you, uh, but also just throwing us into uh, some open water swim courses that he would make up, right? Like go swim around the boat. Uh, there, and he'd point out a boat, go out and, and you know, 
I, I would get the shit kicked out of me, right? By a bunch of girls. And it, it was the best thing for my swimming. And right now with this master's group, there are a lot of swimmers who are my equal in the pool, but would they would even admit that in the open water, I would probably have two to three minutes on them over 1900 meters, uh, more over the Ironman. So that was a hundred percent, just like throwing myself into an open water swim group. So long story short, I would say, just like I said earlier, the, the way to be better at open water swimming is to open water swim and even better is to have a squad, right? And not everyone has access to open water swimming uh, here in Boulder, we have uh, a couple private lakes that certain athletes can have access to. Um, I know if you live on the coast in the United States, there's better access to things like Tower 26 down in uh, Santa Monica, but most people don't have access to it. So you really kind of have to seek it out or uh, there's a lot of training camps that do a lot of open water swimming. So if that is your goal is to improve the open water swimming, um, then yeah, you, you really have to seek it out, I think. Uh, or if you're lucky, you have it right in your backyard, uh, which is actually the case for you in the summer. Uh, you have your little uh, sort of watering hole there and <laughs> with that I've swam in with you. So um, it, it really is like race specificity, just like anything else. Like you, you don't ride a road bike to train for a time trial race and you, you don't run up a mountain to, well, actually you do. There are a lot of hills in training, but to, race specific run work would happen on a flat course, right? If you were racing a, you know, a, a typical 70.3 with a, with a flat run course. So um, same in swimming, we train in a pool, we get fit in a pool, but the open water skills are just so important uh, that in age group racing, it's a, it's a little bit more like sighting abilities, right? So you don't go off course or uh, you're typically in the water with up to 3000 athletes at a time. So how do you manage that? Uh, and then I've had a lot of athletes that I coach who uh, have, um, they're actually afraid of the open water. So getting over that like fear of what's underneath you or um, whatever it is. I mean, some people it's just sort of an ethereal threat, not even like, it's not even sharks or alligators or anything. It's just like the water is dark. I can't see the bottom. Uh, and I'm not comfortable with this. So um, all sorts of things that, you know, doing it prior to race day is very important, just like any other sport. Uh, so yeah, just general open water work, I think is is my biggest swim tip for, for all athletes. Yeah. So I think <clears throat> what I heard there was getting in the open water, getting in the environment in which you're going to race and that obviously brings familiarity and then on top of that you can work on swimming at the right intensity and swimming around other people so again another form of familiarity and then the other things that sort of stood out there was swimming in the squad environment uh, that can be very beneficial if, if there is a good squad that you can get access to um, that can be beneficial and then high cadence high stroke rating you mentioned is again related to the open water swim tips but um, you know being able to practice that and, and work on your fitness, as you said, in the pool so that you can then apply that into the open water. So some good tips there as well. Um, yeah. Rather than I ask mean, you, sorry, go the, on. the stroke rating stuff, I mean, the, the general like stroke uh, tips and everything like that, kind of getting into the weeds a little bit there. And uh, But I think uh, every athlete's going to be different. I mean, that's kind of the theme of this entire podcast. But um, I think, you know, getting in a squad, 
getting some stroke instruction from a coach that's watching you. Uh, these are all things that, uh, that are just, I think, instrumental in being a good swimmer and a good open water swimmer. So uh, some people might start with a low cadence, a, a high, uh, a low stroke rating, and maybe it needs to be higher, but some people it might need to go lower. And, uh, and there may be completely other things that people need to work on, right? Like um, not everyone grew up swimming. So I think the, the initial uh, focus for swimming is just swimming properly for most people. Uh, and getting into stroke rating is, is getting into a little bit into the weeds, maybe a little too complicated from the outset, but, um, stroke work in general, uh, technique work is, is huge in swim, as you know. Yeah. So rather than asking you some general tips for age groupers, which is a little bit boring, one that is just common amongst basically every coach I talk to and every athlete we've had on this podcast is consistency. So what does consistency mean for you as coach Kevin? So if you're working with an age group athlete, what, what does consistency look like? And obviously it might be different for different people, but you might um, use a couple of examples there, but, you know, rather than just asking you what your tips are and one of them being be consistent, can you maybe just dive into what consistency might look like for, for different types of athletes in the age group field? Yeah. I think, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is something that drives me nuts as a coach because, well, to set this up, I think most athletes, if they hire a coach, they're ready to be consistent in their training. And if we have the discussion around like, what are your usable hours every week, you know, whether it's five hours a week or 25 hours a week, and then we set up the training program, I think that athlete has bought in and, and is ready to be consistent with their training. But the thing that drives me nuts is when an athlete says like uh, they have their last race, uh, let's just say North American summer is over and they raced on September 16th and they're like, okay, that's it. I'll talk to you next May. Right. Like, so they're just going to take off from October to April and, and just not do anything. Right. So if you're, I feel like if you're an athlete that has hired a coach and is serious about improving at the sport of triathlon or whatever sport you've decided to, to sort of pursue, uh, the winter months are such a great time to develop as an athlete. You can do things, you, you can get away from that race specificity and just hone in on the athlete's weaknesses. Um, you know, remote coaching, that might mean uh, videos, sending me videos of swimming uh, or running. I actually just had a chat with uh, one of my athletes today. We're going to do that. And this is an athlete who in the past has taken the winter off. Right. And, and I didn't talk to him from uh, essentially September to March of the following year. And it, and it just seemed kind of like we were starting back from square one when we first got started again. Um, but this winter we are going to move through the entire winter with a, an, with an actual program. And I think that is a very basic level of consistency that if you're an age group athlete and you've hired a coach, it's sort of a year round thing. Um, because you really will. I mean, I, athletes go so far backwards in the winter without going back to our point about, uh, accountability. If there's no accountability, often work won't get done. Um, and, and so like consistency day in and day out, I feel like most athletes are prepared to do that, but it's that consistency year in and year out that a lot of athletes have driven me nuts with with their long winter breaks from training yeah another good answer and i was potentially looking to ask you you know common traits of 
the guys that are performing well or common mistakes and sort of um, integrating that question into one. But I think you've kind of covered it off with your, you know, and I think we get an idea of your general approach and and thoughts, you know, not, not only from your previous answer, but from you know, the general themes over the course of the conversation so far. So just as a sort of final main topic, you did just touch on remote coaching. Obviously you and I have a remote coaching relationship and to my knowledge, all of your current one-to-one coach athletes, you're, you are doing it remotely. So do you have sort of tips um, for age groupers um, or again, you know, general themes that you, you try and follow to maintain a remote coaching relationship and make sure that it's successful for both parties? Yeah. And another buzzword to throw in here is just communication. And obviously you're as about as remote as we can get here. I think we only have probably two to three hours, maybe four hours a day where both of us are awake. Um, so there's a lot of WhatsApp notes, uh, voice notes, WhatsApp messages. Actually, I think we may have you and I like seven to eight various different communication methods, which drives me nuts. Um, as an elder <laughs> oh no it's just i mean it's like email right whatsapp uh facebook messenger it, there's so many yeah. things these days that's the problem it's not you the problem is there's too many messaging apps um, no, the, the, your but, point obviously being that communication is key and there's many yes. ways to communicate and sometimes we we quite literally will have an email thread going some whatsapp going training peaks comments going um and then maybe yeah maybe like facebook messenger as well or something so yeah, yeah. No excuses and not to communicate. With, exactly. And it goes with all my athletes because I can deliver the training program uh, and the, the sessions themselves can have all the details in the world. But a, a simple phone call and walking through what I just put up is very is so valuable, right? So I'll, I'll just ping an athlete with a text or a note or an email or something and be like, hey, uh, two weeks are up in training peaks. And let me know if you have a chance to chat. So if uh, obviously if I coach 30 athletes, that would be very time consuming for me. That So that's sort of where the athlete limit comes in. Um, so just getting on the phone or on an email or whatever it is, or even a WhatsApp voice note, uh, sort of explaining the purpose of a session, why it's set up the way it is, and, and just going over the whole thing. Uh, I think that's really valuable in remote coaching because... It, having been a part of an in-person squad, there's really no need to ever, you wouldn't want to talk to, like, I would never want to talk to Darren Smith on the phone after just seeing him all day. Like he just, he was just calling me uh, like a horrible runner for the entire morning. So, but with, with remote coaching, communication is, is just absolutely a necessity, right? Like um, just to be able to communicate everything that's going on, right. Uh, Even down to the, maybe sending swim videos, right? Uh, or running videos. I've had some athletes who I popped into one of their sessions and uh, the athlete's run cadence was actually like average of 156. Uh, and I know that immediately set off an alarm bell for you, Jamie, but uh, for the listeners, that's very low. And there is a point in running where if your cadence is too low, right, you're just sort of out there jumping. It's more like a plyometrics workout than it is a cardiovascular running workout. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, hey, you, 
send me a video of you running. We need to get to the bottom of this, right? So uh, just in that one sentence, we're talking about a few different communication uh, methods, trading peaks, uh, the workout file popped up. Um, and then, yeah, I just pinged him a note and he sent me a video over WhatsApp. So uh, from there, it was a cadence project for him, a, run, a running cadence project. So um, I think remote coaching, just uh, the overall message is communication with your coach. If it's not there, um, then, you know, it's it's not an optimal coaching relationship. Yep. I uh, I like that, and I I think I think we've covered quite a broad range of topics there. Obviously, all centered around coaching and coaching for the age group athlete, the value of coaching, how to have a successful coach athlete relationship, including when that is a remote relationship. Is is there anything else you might want to you want to touch on or, or want to say before we start to wrap things up? Um, well, it's, uh, I guess the only thing that comes to mind is we just chatted about remote coaching. Uh, but like on the off chance that I do get to see one of my athletes, uh, that those, whatever, whether it's two weeks or three days, uh, I've done a lot of races with my athletes. So just having those small amounts of time in person can accelerate the, you know, the coaching, uh, process just, it, it, it can accelerate it like light years. It can be like, uh, you can cut off development time, uh, you know, by weeks or months or years, whatever it is, uh, just to be able to see that athlete in person, see him or her swim, uh, ride a bike, run. Uh, what is what is his or her interaction with the bike? Like, are they wrestling it or are they like smooth like a like a Tour de France cyclist? Right. So, uh, as much as remote coaching is ninety eight percent of what I do, I and I know you as well, Jamie. Ninety eight percent of what you do, there is there are times when we're in person with an athlete and, and obviously that's super valuable as well. So um, yeah, I think it, it takes both. Uh, and it, it certainly is, uh, it certainly is possible to be a hundred percent remote coached, but you know, in person is, is invaluable. Yeah. So I think in, invaluable can definitely being in person can be invaluable and that can definitely, you know, add to that value and add to that experience and be beneficial um, so it's not to say remote coaching is, is better than face-to-face coaching or even face-to-face coaching being better than remote coaching, um, but it is obviously a reality of our situation and, and many other people, whether they live in the same country or whether they live halfway across the world, um, but it can be done and it can be done successfully, I guess is the take-home message there. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it. All right. Cool. Well, we should wrap it up because it's, uh, it must be nearly dinner time for you over there. Um so yeah, I want to take this opportunity to thank you. We've probably, we, we have had a lot of conversations over three or four years working together, but you know, this one was a little bit different for obvious reasons, but um, yeah, I think I definitely learned a few things about sort of what drives and motivates you and those underlying and core values for you as a coach. Talked a lot about your experience um, athletically. And I think what stood out was also experience with different coaches um, and that can be good and bad. Um, I think another underlying theme was, simplicity um and then we got into you know the details but also just how those simple things can have such a far-reaching effect and and obviously i've been on on the receiving end of those and you know it's just those little things like the care factor and the accountability and and it is often those simple things that that go a long way so yeah thanks again for coming on and sharing um we do have some grand plans of 
either making a regular episode or, or you coming on again and, and talking about uh, a whole range of topics. So, you know, that is definitely in the pipeline as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And I, yeah, I feel like we just touched the surface uh, here. So I'm, I'm available as you know, to be on uh, anytime. Let's we'll okay. do it again. Well, no worries. Thanks again. And we will speak soon. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for future guests, please contact us via the Diary of an Age Grouper Instagram page. Alternatively, you can email info at jetcoaching.com.au. Don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. This podcast was born to discuss all things age group triathlon. As an athlete, coach, and fan of the sport, I've always been intrigued with different approaches to training and how to optimize an individual's performance. We will speak to athletes who perform at a high level, as well as those with an interesting story. We will speak to coaches with a vast array of experience and also experts in various fields. We want to sift through what the physiology labs tell us, as well as what we see the pros doing and take the lessons that apply to us. This is the Diary of an Age Grouper.